Well, good evening, everyone. We are going to be looking at the Antichrist agenda. We are going to start looking tonight at the things that are happening in the world and why they're happening and who's behind it all. Now, of course, we know that the devil's behind it all, right? But he uses human instrumentalities to do his dirty work. And so we're going to start looking at that tonight. And so let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for a love that is so deep and so wide and so high that we can't even truly fathom it. But Lord, we do know that the closer we get to You, the closer we see Your love, Your mercy, Your goodness, the more we realize that we don't measure up. We fall short of Your goodness, Your mercy, Your love. But Lord, we do know that we want to be like You. We want to have Your love. We want to have Your mercy and Your kindness. And we want to know where we are heading and what You have in store for us. And so thank You for putting a hunger and a desire in our heart to be here each night. Because it surely takes a commitment. And thank You for making it a priority in our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that You would speak to us once again tonight, that the holy angels would be here to minister to us. The Holy Spirit is here. We welcome You. We thank You. And we pray that You would guide our hearts and minds because You're the one that inspired this Word that we are studying. And so we need You to help us to comprehend it. And we ask that You will do that very thing. But more than that, we don't want to just have head knowledge, Lord. We want to have heart knowledge. We want to give our hearts to You. And we want to fall in love with the truth. And we want to do Your will. And we pray You'd help us to do that. In Jesus' name, Amen. Years ago, the home used to be a place of refuge. It used to be a place of security. Down through the centuries, it was a haven of stability. The home was a place that you could flee to to get away from the trials, the troubles, the difficulties, the challenges of life. You could enter into the doors of your home and you could feel this sense of security as your family would come and you'd get those hugs and those embraces and greetings. You could have this sense of well-being. The home was the traditional place of family togetherness. But friends, as you know as well as I do, over the last 20 years, that has been changing. The 21st century home is becoming a battlefield. Words like abuse, conflict, hostility, anger are commonplace when you talk about the home today. We read about families who are constantly running from here to there and always on the go and, and eating out fast food, running around, and the only time that we come home is if we do come home to eat or we come home to sleep. 
The number of single parents is growing in our society. The structure of the home is different today than it has ever been. Many parents are seriously concerned about the things that are coming into their home via the internet. The home used to be a stable sanctuary, but today it is all changing. Through television and the internet, excessive violence, sex, and the total lack of decency and morality have invaded our homes. The distortion of values is occurring right in our own homes. Things are changing quickly and they are changing dramatically. We live in a high-tech, media-savvy society which offers sex, violence, greed as the prime-time things that are coming through our televisions. Hollywood images penetrating our home, messages that are communicated that are producing tragic behavior in many that are watching, especially among children. Our children are exposed to many versions of what's wrong and what's right. There is a competition, a competing value of what's right and what's wrong in the minds of our children. The statistics tell us that the average 18-year-old has witnessed 200,000 violent acts on television and movies, including 40,000 murders. And then we ask... Does this form of entertainment that we watch make any difference in our thinking processes? Does it really produce some of the violent behaviors that we are seeing in the world today? Many years ago, Dr. Sherbert Frazier wrote a book called Psychotrends. And in that book, he speaks of a co-violent society that celebrates mayhem while at the same time condemning it. In other words, he says, we talk disparagingly about murder and then we go watch it on television. It's like the rugby player who says, that's it. I've had enough. This game is too violent. And he leaves the game only to walk up into the stand and watch the rest of the game. That's what has happened to our American values. We are in a place, many of us, where we think, okay, I'm a Christian now. I don't do those things anymore. I'm not involved with those things. I've left those things behind. But then we live vicariously through the things that are going on in society. You may remember the Columbine school shooting of many years ago. And of course, we've had many more shootings since then, haven't we? It seems like there's something going on each and every week. But what's interesting, this was the first major one that captured the news attention. But what's interesting about this is that when they began to investigate the two young men that essentially went into their school and terrorized it, killing some 12 or 13 people and wounding many others, when they started investigating them afterwards, they discovered that these two young men were heavily involved in violent video games. And they even discovered that some of the pipe bombs that they had made that hadn't exploded, they had written the names of their video characters on them. 
And so you have this competition for values that is going on in the home and in society. But you know, the Bible tells us very clearly that by beholding, we become changed. In other words, what comes into your mind, into your thoughts, goes out in your life. And the question that I want to ask you tonight is where is all of this heading? Because the sociologists tell us that they don't see any end in sight. And they tell us that America is getting to a place now where we are lacking in any moral compass. We know, of course, that God has a moral compass, right? But our society at large has turned its back on God's moral standard. And I wish, what did I say? I wish that we could blame it on society. I wish that we could blame it on the world, but the reality is that much of the world's impenitent lies, at least in part, at the door of the church. Because you see, most churches today, most pastors and teachers are teaching, at least in a large part, that the law of God is no longer applicable. That we are no longer under the law, that we are under grace, and we don't need the commandments of God. But friends, without a moral compass, our society is thrown into a state of confusion. In our society today, the attitude is that I can decide for myself what is right and what is wrong, and you can decide for yourself. And they don't have to agree. In our society today, the attitude is nobody can tell you what to do. The motto of today is, if it feels good, do it. In other words, if it brings you pleasure... Go ahead. Just do whatever you want. But then we ask the question, why is the crime rate so high? Why is violence so prevalent in our world today? But I want you to notice what Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, had to say about this in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 26. He said, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. In other words, he's saying that our minds can deceive us. We can convince ourselves of just about anything if we're going by our own thoughts or we're going by our feelings and our emotions. And that's why it says in Hosea chapter 8, verse 7, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. That's where we get that saying, you reap what you sow right? But we sow the wind of violence in the media and we are reaping the whirlwind of crime. We sow the wind of immorality in the movies and shows that we watch and we are reaping the whirlwind of high divorce rates, rape, murder, incest, abuse to children. There is this cause and effect relationship that we see there. 
And so the question is, how do you protect moral values in an immoral world? That's a great question, isn't it? And you know what? The book of Revelation provides some very clear-cut answers to that question. The book of Revelation is the revelation of whom? Of Jesus Christ. That's right. It is the last book of the Bible. And Revelation has a message for the last generation of men and women that are living on the planet earth. The book of Revelation has a message for you and me. And it is a call back to morality. It is a call back to the standards of God. And we've been studying the book of Revelation. And this message is an urgent message that goes out It is a message that needs to be understood. And we've been looking at this message in Revelation 14, 6. John says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So we see here that this is an urgent message. This is a universal message. This is a message that leaps across geographical boundaries. This is a message that penetrates language groups. This is a message that races north, south, east, and west. This is a message that goes to the end of the world. And in verse 7, that message says, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Now, we've already talked about this, and we understand that when it says fear God, it doesn't mean that we are to be afraid of God, but rather that we are to have a healthy respect for God. And if we truly respect Him, we will do what He says. We will keep His commandments. And so it is a call for us to obey Him. This message is also a call for us to give glory to God. And we talked about that, that we give glory to God through our actions in our everyday lives. What we eat, what we drink, what we wear, what we watch, who we hang out with, every aspect of our life reveals what we truly believe. And we are called to give glory to God. And this passage in Revelation actually answers the question of how we live morally in an immoral world because you see we have a high crime rate today don't we we have a lot of immorality in the world today don't we we have a lot of lawlessness but what this verse reveals is that the whole issue revolves around the issue of moral responsibility The judgment calls us to accountability for our actions. Judgment implies responsibility. It implies making moral choices. And so the idea that many people have today is that I'm not responsible. It's not my fault, right? And so if I'm not responsible, how can God hold me accountable? There are many people in the world today that get this idea in their head that it's not my fault. I'm an alcoholic because my father was. I'm an alcoholic because his father and his father before him were, and so I'm not responsible. 
I'm not responsible for the fact that I am doing drugs because I was abused as a child. It's not my fault. I'm not responsible. I'm a criminal, but it's not my fault. It's in my genetics. It's in my genes. I can't do anything about it. It's not my fault. It's not my responsibility. The society we live in is a society that largely says you are not responsible for your actions. And our society today also says that you can choose for yourself what is right and wrong. And what someone else chooses may not be the same thing, but that's okay. And when you take that position that you are the one that decides what's morally right and wrong, what you're saying is there's no higher power. There's no God who is going to hold me accountable. And when you take that position that there is no God, that there is no judgment, then here's the problem. You have no certain moral standards to guide your life. Judgment implies responsibility and moral choices. And in the last days of earth's history, God is calling men and women to judgment. Now let me ask you a question. Does God have a standard of morality that is the basis for the judgment and I hope that we're all able to say yes he does yes he does God's law is the basis of morality and the standard of his judgment the book of Revelation speaks of a society that says my mind is the highest authority that I need the book of Revelation says that God is not going to hold me responsible. There is no God. The book of Revelation, therefore, is the last plea of God. It is the last cry to humanity calling us back to the law of God, back to God's moral standard. Now I want to show you something, so turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 2. If you're using one of our seminar Bibles on the table there, that's going to be page 1387. James chapter 2. And I want you to notice something that James says to us. James chapter 2 in verse 12. James tells us, So speak and so do as though you will be judged by the law of liberty. Here James tells us we are going to be judged by the law of God, but then he says it's a law of liberty. Now when we think of God's law, many times we think of a God who is giving us rules and regulations, right? Here's a God who is trying to take away all of our fun. But here, James tells us that's not the case. He says this is a law of liberty. Now let me give you a few examples of this. You go to Exodus chapter 20, and that's where God gives Moses the Ten Commandment law. And we look at the Sixth Commandment, and it says, You shall not kill. 
A more proper rendering of that is you shall not murder. But I want you to notice that that is a law of liberty. Because if we follow that law, we see that it preserves the sanctity of life. That's a good thing, isn't it? That brings liberty to people. We go to the seventh commandment and it says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And we know that that preserves the sanctity of the family. It protects the institution of the family. It is a law of liberty. You look at the Eighth Commandment and it says, You shall not steal. It is a law of liberty because it protects our possessions and our property. I want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like if every single person in this country ignored that law. Can you imagine what it would be like? I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. That's going to be page 1416 if you're using that seminar Bible. And I want you to look with me. Revelation 11. And I want you to notice that John is in vision. And he looks up into heaven. And notice what verse 19 says. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the what? The ark of His covenant was seen in His temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake and great hail. And so here we see that John looks up into heaven and he sees the ark of the covenant. Now we talked about this last night, didn't we? That God told Moses that He wanted Israel to build a tabernacle so that He could dwell among them. And He told Moses that they were to build the tabernacle and all of its furnishings according to the pattern. And so Moses has them build this tabernacle and part of the furnishings was the Ark of the Covenant. It is essentially a box that is overlaid with gold and it has these poles on it that they could use to carry it. But we talked about this already. They put the tablets of stone, they put the commandments of God inside the Ark of the Covenant, right? And then we also talked about how the top of that Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat and symbolically that was representing the throne of God. You remember talking about that? Okay, so we see John seeing the Ark of the Covenant in heaven. And remember, everything on the earthly was a pattern of the heavenly. It was symbolic of a greater reality that would happen in heaven. And so we see this Ark of the Covenant with the commandments of God inside underneath the mercy seat, which is symbolizing God's throne. And so here we have the Ark of God's Covenant containing His law there in heaven. And so here's what we're seeing symbolically in that. God's law is the foundation of His throne. 
if the Ten Commandment law was inside and the throne of God, the mercy seat, was above that, the law is the foundation. You see the symbology there? And so what we're seeing here is that God's law is the foundation of His throne. It is the foundation of His government, if you will. Judgment and law are a part of the gospel. But someone here might say, but Pastor Rod, I thought that we were under grace and not under the law. Let me see if I can try to put this in the proper context. As Jesus was hanging there on the cross, He was being judged as a sinner. Now, did Jesus sin? No, of course not. But all of the sins of every man, woman, and child that would ever lived was placed on Him. And so as He's hanging on the cross, He is being judged as a sinner. The law said the wages of sin is death. And Jesus was dying that death for you. He was being judged. And so the Gospel has to include the judgment. Amen? Now, think about this for a minute. As Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane before He was crucified, He was pouring out His heart to the Father. And what did He say? He said, Father, if there is any other way possible, let this cup pass. Don't let me go to the cross, right? If there's any other way possible. If there's any other way possible of what? If there's any other way possible to save man. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. Because the wages of sin is death. And so the only other possible way that we might be able to think of that God could have gone if it were possible would be to get rid of His law. Because sin is transgression of the law and if you get rid of the law then Jesus didn't have to die. Am I right? And so the only other possible way could have been to get rid of the law. But Jesus had to go to the cross. Why? Because God's law cannot be done away with. It is the very foundation of His government. It is the very basis of His character. It is who He is. And you can't take away who God is. And so the law cannot be done away with. Now, I want to show you something here. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, that's going to be page 1400 of that seminar Bible. 1 John chapter 3. And I want you to notice what John says in verse 4. He says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Now you might say to someone, I don't think it's a sin to take what doesn't belong to me. 
we can make that judgment in our own minds, but clearly the law of God says you shall not steal. Amen? And so the Bible's definition of sin is breaking God's law. A man may look at his marriage and see that it's not that good and he might decide, you know what, uh, this weekend I'm just going to take one of the secretaries from work and we're going to go somewhere and uh, it's going to be okay because we're both consenting adults. And that might sound okay and we could make that judgment, we could make that reasoning in our own minds, couldn't we? And people do it all the time. But if there is a higher standard, which we know there is, it's God's law, and God's law says you shall not commit adultery, then we are breaking God's law. You see, God's law is His eternal moral standard which defines sin and establishes our accountability to God. Law defines what morality is even if our minds don't. Even if we try to justify our actions in our own minds. The Bible says that sin is breaking God's law. And Revelation 14 verse 7 says, the hour of His judgment has come. The book of Revelation says essentially then that you are responsible for your actions. The book of Revelation says that the foundation of God's throne is His law. And what our children need today is not a diet of murder, violence, and immorality on television. What our children and grandchildren need today is to be taught the moral principles of God's law. Amen? The moral law of God is there to protect us. God's law is not some arbitrary regulation that He has come up with to try and keep us from having too much fun. God's law is the pathway to freedom and genuine happiness. God's law protects us from a lifestyle that will destroy us. And the biggest problem today is that the majority of Christian Churches and pastors are teaching that God's law is no longer applicable. That it has been done away with, having nailed it to the cross, they say, right? There are even Christians today that have said to me, um, you know, in our church, our pastor, he doesn't preach on the law. He preaches on the love of God. As if they're different As if they're contrary to each other, right? Love always leads to obedience. Love doesn't lead to disobedience. It leads us to keep the commandments of God. Jesus, Notice Jesus did not say, if you love me, you don't have to worry about keeping my commandments anymore. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love's response is to keep God's commandments, to obey Him. The reason that we obey is not because we're trying to earn our way into heaven. 
It's not because we're trying to buy our way into heaven. It is a response to His love. God loves us unconditionally. He accepts us. And in response, we love Him back. And if we love Him, Jesus said, you will keep My commandments. The implication there is that we keep all of them. Amen? And so if I obey God, it's not in order to be saved, but it's because I am saved. It's a natural byproduct of God living in you. All my obedience is never going to earn me salvation. Christ worked all of that out on the cross. But when I come to the cross... Obedience is the evidence that I have been transformed. That He has come into my heart and into my life and He is saving me. Now let me show you something else. you still got your Bibles open to 1 John. I want you to look with me this time in 1 John chapter 2. That's going to be page 1398 of your seminar Bible. 1 John chapter 2. And I want you to notice what John says in verse 3 and 4. He says, Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's pretty strong words, isn't it? But what he's saying here is that there should be evidence in our lives if we say, I know God. You know, anybody can say, I know God, right? But how many people do you know that say they know God, say that they love God, And they look like and act like everybody else in the world. There are a lot of people that way, aren't there? But there should be evidence that you are a born-again believer. And here is the evidence that we are truly Christ's. That we are keeping His commandments. Anyone can say, I know God. But is there going to be evidence? Because friends, think about this for a minute. We saw last night that the judgment began in 1844. It's going on now. And eventually they're going to get to you. And when they do, and they're examining the records because the angels have been recording everything you say, everything you do, even what you think is being recorded by God, And when they look at those records, is there going to be enough evidence to show that you have a life that has been surrendered to God? Is there evidence that the power of God is in you and you are transformed? You are different than the rest of the world. Can we see by the things you eat, the things you drink, the things you wear, by the things that you do, by the things that you don't do, is there enough evidence there to show that you know God? You see, grace and law are not contradictory ideas. 
when you are saved by grace, you are saved not so you can disobey God, but you are saved and God gives you the power so that you don't disobey anymore. That's why we've adopted this motto for our study, isn't it? If it's in the Bible, I believe it. But if it's not, or if it contradicts the Bible, I'm throwing it out. I don't believe it. So let's ask the question, what is the role of God's law? First of all, we know that the Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith. Amen? So... Old Testament believers looked forward to Christ who would come. And New Testament believers look back to Christ who has come. And so Old Testament believers are saved by grace. And New Testament believers are saved by grace. But if it's all being saved by grace, then what's the role of God's law? Notice that Romans chapter 3, verse 20 tells us, By the law is the knowledge of sin. So if you do away with the law, then there's no such thing as sin. Because the law tells us what sin is, right? It says, By the law is the knowledge of sin. God reveals to us what is sin by His law. Paul says in Romans 7, 7, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness, which is the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's house or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So I wouldn't have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. And so if you break God's law, that is sin. And so the role of the law is simply to define what sin is. The law says this is right and that is wrong. The law defines the moral standard of God's judgment. The law defines the foundation of His government and all of His society. The judgment, therefore, in Revelation, calls men and women in the last days to come back to keeping God's law. It calls Christians that are saved by the grace of God to live obedient, faithful, righteous, holy lives. Revelation's judgment does not justify our sinful behavior, but it calls us to moral responsibility. So then the question is, well then what is the role of grace? I want to show you something. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, that's going to be 1343 of your seminar Bible. If you find 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then you have Galatians and then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Ephesus. What he's saying to us today. Ephesians 2, look with me in verse 8 and 9. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So here we see that God's grace is God's gift. God's grace is God's mercy. It is God's pardon. It is God's forgiveness. It is God's power in our lives helping us to do what we can't do of ourselves. Grace is love reaching out to sinners. And so then that begs of the question, does grace do away with God's law? If I am saved by grace, does that mean that it's okay for me to break God's law? Does it do away with God's law? I want you to notice what the Bible says in Romans 3.31. Do we then make void the law through faith? In other words, Paul is saying, because we have the grace of God, He's given us faith, does that mean the law is done away with? That it's void? That it's no longer applicable? And thank God, he answers the question himself. He says, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. In other words, he's saying, on the contrary, we keep the law. People who have been saved by grace are obedient to God. We don't do away with the law because we are saved by grace, but rather, when God comes into your heart and into your life, now He gives you the power, the capacity, the ability, and even the desire to keep His law. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus told us, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. In other words, Jesus is saying, I didn't come to do away with the law, to get rid of it. And Jesus Christ Himself lived the law, didn't He? And Jesus Himself fulfilled it. He filled it until it was full. He showed us that not only He could keep the law, but He was showing us that if we have God in us, we also can keep the law. He filled it until it was full. Notice Romans 6.14, Paul says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now friends, there are a lot of Christians today that take that one verse and they build all of their Bible doctrine around it. They take that one verse and they say, See, we're no longer under the law. We don't have to obey the law. We're under grace. But look at all of the other verses in the Bible that we've looked at already, and there are many, many more. And remember what we talked about. You can't build your Bible doctrine on one verse. You've got to look at the whole of Bible, and you've got to put it all together. You've got to look at the weight of evidence, and then you've got to take that one verse that seems to be saying something contrary. You've got to rethink it. You've got to put it in the proper context. You've got to try and line it up with all of the other fence posts. And when you get them all lined up, 
then and only then can you be pretty certain that you have the correct interpretation. And so Paul says, sin is transgression of the law. And then he says, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. And so why are we under grace? And why are we not under the law? Let me, let me give you an example of this. I want you to imagine that you leave here tonight and you come out here on Ashman Street and you're going down and you see that the speed limit's 35 miles an hour. But you're in a hurry. And you're thinking to yourself, man, that Pastor Rod is a long-winded preacher. i got to go get something to eat. I've got to get to bed. I have got to go to work tomorrow. And you're doing about 45 or 50 miles an hour. And all of a sudden you look in the mirror and there are those flashing lights. And the police officer comes up to your car and you roll down the window and you look up and you say, Officer... I'm sorry. I know I was speeding, but man, you got to give me a break. You see, I was down at that Jesus on Prophecy seminar, and there was a long-winded preacher down there, and he kept going on and on, and I didn't think I was ever going to get out of there, and I got to get something to eat, and I got to go to bed, and I got to go to work tomorrow, and I'm just asking you, can you give me a break? And that police officer, he goes back to his car with your license and insurance and registration and he checks you out with a fine-tuned comb. He's going to make sure you don't have any warrants out for any of your arrests. And then he comes back to your car and he smiles and he says, I have never heard that one before. <laughs> he says, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you off with a warning. Now let me ask you a question. What are you going to do? You're going to hit the gas and you're going to burn rubber and you're going to throw gravel on his car because you're under grace. You're no longer under the law. Is that what you're going to do? No. You're going to look both ways. You're going to check out your mirror. You're going to turn on your blinker, which you never do. You're going to be looking to make sure there are no cars from here to Oil City. And then you're finally going to slowly turn out there. And you're going to make sure that you stay within the confines of the law. Aren't you? Because you've been given grace. And you're going to make sure that at least for a couple of days, that you're going to keep going the speed limit, right? Friends, grace does not do away with the law. So let's go back to Romans 6.14. What does it mean then to be under the law? It means that we are under the law as a method of salvation. It means that we are under the condemnation of the law because we've broken it. It means that I trust the law to save me even though I've broken the law. And so I'm condemned. So what is sin? Sin is breaking God's law. 
and I'm condemned because I've broken His law and now I'm under the condemnation of the law. You see the difference? So what does it mean then to be under grace? To be under grace means I come to the cross, I get down on my knees, and I accept Christ's pardon, I receive Christ's forgiveness, and I'm filled with the power of God, and now I have the capacity, the ability, the desire to keep God's law. Christ writes His law in my mind and in my heart. Let me ask you a question. If Christ writes His law in your mind and in your heart, are you going to want to keep it? I think so. Think about it this way. If He writes His law in my mind, that means I know His law. And if He writes His law in my heart, that means I love His law. Amen? And so it doesn't do away with the law, but now we have Christ in us. Now we have the capacity. Now we have the ability. Now we even have the desire to keep His law. But you see, the law reveals our need. When I look at God's law, I see that I don't measure up. I see that I fall short. I see that there are times that I get angry. There are times when I'm not patient. There are times when I think wrong thoughts, right? And so when I come to God's law, I can see my need. When I come to Jesus Christ and I fall at His feet, I can see what David means when he says in Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It is the law of God that helps me to see my need. I need a Savior. The purpose of the law is to drive me to Christ so that I can accept Him as my Lord and Savior and now He can give me the power to keep His law, to keep me from sinning. And so I have to come to Jesus with a broken heart. I have to say, Lord, forgive me. I've messed up. I need your help. I can't save myself. I can't keep your law in my own power. I don't even have an inkling or a desire to do it without you. I need you. Come into my heart and help me to keep your law. Help me to be obedient. One day somebody came to Jesus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he was a lawyer And he just came to try and trip Jesus up, to try and trip him. And notice what he says in Matthew 22, verse 36. He says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which one is the most important? Which one should I focus on? And notice what Jesus said to him. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and body, with all of your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now friends, again, there are many Christians today who take one verse and they build their Bible doctrine around that and they say, see, the Ten Commandments are done away with. Jesus reduced it to two. 
He says all we need to do is love God and love our neighbor. But I want you to think about that for a minute. Did Jesus keep the law? Absolutely. Would Jesus tell us to do away with the law? No. So what is Jesus doing here? He is simply summarizing the Ten Commandments. Because Jesus said, on these two commandments hang what? All the law and the prophets. And so what is Jesus saying here? He's simply summarizing the Ten Commandments. And He said, the first thing you need to do is love God. And if we truly love God, we will keep the first four commandments because they have to do with our relationship with Him. He says, if you truly love Me, you will have no other gods before Me. If you truly love Me, you won't make for yourself any idols. You won't bow down to images or any person or anything else. If you truly love Me, you won't take My name in vain. If you truly love Me, you will keep the Sabbath day holy. And so what He's saying simply is, if you love Me, it's going to take care of those first four. And then he says, and if you love your neighbor, it's going to take care of the last six. If you truly love your neighbor, you won't steal from him. If you truly love your neighbor, you won't commit adultery with his wife or his husband. If you truly love your neighbor, you won't covet the things that he has. If you truly love your neighbor, you will help them, right? And so all Jesus is doing is summarizing the Ten Commandments. And I want you to notice what He's doing here. The entire law can be summed up into just one word. Love. Love God and love everybody else. And if you do that, the rest just works itself out, doesn't it? Love always leads to obedience. God's Ten Commandment law was written by the hand of God in stone, signifying that it cannot be changed, it cannot be undone, it cannot be done away with. Keeping God's law doesn't keep us in bondage. It takes us out of bondage. The Ten Commandments were not given to restrict our freedom. They were designed to protect us from messing up our lives, from destroying ourselves. They were given by God Himself. And notice how He introduced them. He said to Moses in Exodus 20 verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Here God is saying to Moses and to us, I want you to look at what I did for you. I physically brought you out of slavery. And now He gives him the Ten Commandments. And what He's saying is, if you keep My commandments, I'm going to keep you out of spiritual bondage. I'm going to keep you out of spiritual slavery. It is the Lord God Himself, the Creator of heaven and earth, who wrote the commandments by His own finger in stone. So let's read the Ten Commandments. 
The first one says, you shall have no other gods before me. That means there shouldn't be anything in your life that takes precedence over God. Not your job, not your family, not your favorite hobbies, not any of your favorite sports teams. You should have no other gods before me. The second commandment says you shall not make unto yourself any graven images. He's the invisible God. He doesn't want us to come up with some statue or some person that we can bow down to or make them in an image like Him and make that our God. He says don't do it. He wants us to come directly to Him, not to go through saints or any other person or priest or king or pastor or anybody else. Don't bow down to those things, but you come directly to Me. Amen? The third one says that you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Now, a lot of times we look at that verse and we say you shouldn't swear. You shouldn't use Jesus' name in a sentence in a bad way. But friends, it means so much more than that. Because think about this. Imagine that you call yourself a Christian. So you've taken God's name. You've taken the name of Christ. Right? You call yourself a Christian and the judgment is going on up in heaven and they examine the books and they see that you're no different than the rest of the world. You've taken the name of Christ and it does you absolutely no good. That's why Paul says in talking about people at the end of time, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. You see, God wants to give you the power in your life to live out His law, to be obedient to Him. The fourth commandment says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. This commandment is telling us to worship God because He's the Creator of heaven and earth. It's telling us that He is the only one that we should worship. There should be no other gods because He's the one who made the world and He's the one who made us. And the fourth commandment speaks directly to our generation. The fifth commandment says to honor your father and your mother. Friends, we are living in an age when children are disobedient to their parents. Amen? It is happening all around us. And so the fifth commandment speaks to us today with relevance. The sixth commandment says you shall not kill or you shall not murder. It's saying that to us in a day when there are nuclear weapons that can destroy the whole world. It's saying that to us today when there are people that walk into a mall and just start shooting. It's telling us in the day that we live in when you can get abortion on demand. There is still a commandment that it gives the sanctity of life and says you shall not kill. And then we come to we shall not commit adultery. And we are living in a world of immorality, aren't we? We are living in a day when people choose for themselves what they will do. But this is a call to America and a call to the world to come back to God's law. Thou shalt not steal. The Eighth Commandment. 
It's still a sin to take something that doesn't belong to you, isn't it? It's still a sin to shoplift. And God is calling us back to His law. The ninth commandment says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In other words, lying is still wrong. Gossiping is still wrong. Dragging someone's good name through the mud is still wrong today. And God is calling us back to have the character of God. And then there's the tenth commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's property, his goods, anything that belongs to your neighbor. The Ten Commandment law speaks to our generation. God's commandments speak directly to you and me. The Ten Commandment law speaks to us with relevance considering the society that we live in today. And the psalmist reveals that God's commandments are forever. Notice what it says in Psalm 111, verse 7 through 9. The works of His hands are verity and justice. All His precepts are sure. Notice it says the works of His hand as it shows us the picture that He's writing the commandments with His hand. They stand fast forever and ever. He has commanded His covenant forever. Friends, Satan lost his place in heaven because of disobedience. Adam and Eve lost their place in the Garden of Eden because of disobedience. And so in these last days, while the judgment is going on right now in heaven, God is calling us back to His Ten Commandment law. He's calling us back to obedience. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, says the Lord. In those, those days... I will put my laws in their mind. I will write them in their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. If God's law is in your mind, you know it. If God's law is in your heart, you love it. God says, my people are perishing because they don't have a love of the truth. God will have a last day people. You remember what we read in Titus chapter 2? That at the end of time, God is going to have a group of people that so perfectly look like Christ that it proves the controversy that you can keep the commandments of God if you have the power of God in you and He's going to come and get His people. So let's read the description of God's last day people. Revelation 14, verse 12 says, Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Here are the faithful ones. Here are the ones who every area of their life is totally surrendered to God and they look like Christ. The records in heaven show that God is in them and they are doing exactly what He has commanded us to do. I want to show you something, so turn with me to Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And turn to the last chapter of the book, chapter 22. And I want you to notice something that John tells us. That's going to be page 1426. 
if you're using one of those Bibles on the table. Revelation 22. And I want you to notice what John says in verse 14. Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Friends, Jesus Christ pardons. He forgives. He says, come to Me, My child, and give your heart to Me, and I will give you the power to live for Me. Not so that we can disobey Him, but so that we can have a relationship with Him. And so Christ is looking directly into your eyes tonight. And He's saying to you, I have something special for you. I have something that I want to do in your life. I want to change you. You see, God accepts you just as you are. You don't have to get yourself cleaned up to come to God. He accepts you just as you are, but He loves you too much to leave you in your sinful condition. And He's going to begin to change your life. He is going to clean you up from the inside out. Would you like to say, Jesus, come into my life? Would you like to say, yes, Lord, I need You. I need the power of God in my life so that I can do Your will. Many years ago, there was a woman who took her son to see the renowned preacher Dwight Moody. And he gave a powerful sermon that day, as he always did. And when he was finished, the woman and her son stood in line because she wanted her son to shake the evangelist's hand. But the boy refused. They waited an hour, but they finally got to him. And when it was time for him to shake his hand, he clenched his fist. He put his hands behind his back. He would not shake the preacher's hand. His mother was embarrassed. She urged him. She tried to coax him. She tried to grab his arm and make him, and he wouldn't do it. And so finally, in frustration, they walked away. And when she finally got him off by herself, she said to him, Open your hand. And when he did, she saw that he had a few marbles in his hand. And she asked him why he wouldn't shake Moody's hand, and he said, I thought he was going to take my marbles. You see, friends, sometimes we think that God wants to take away our freedom when in reality He wants to make us free. Free from the slavery of sin. And so I ask you the question, what are you clinging to? What are you trying to hold on to in these last days of earth's history? Is there anything that could be more important than securing eternal life? I'm going to close today by showing you one more verse. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. That's going to be page 774 in your seminar Bible. If you know where the book of Psalms is, 
There's Proverbs right after that. And then after Proverbs is the book of Ecclesiastes. That's page 774 of the Seminar Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. The book of Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. And the Bible tells us that he was the wisest man that would ever live. And while he was alive, Solomon was trying to find the meaning of life. He went at it like a scientific experiment. He did everything that he could to find out, why am I here? What is my purpose of living? And notice what he says in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so here we see that our whole purpose is to give glory to God. Our whole purpose is to keep His commandments. And so friends, even though there are a lot of my brother and sister pastors who are preaching that the law of God has been done away with, we can clearly see from the Word of God that it's not. It's still applicable today. And in the day of judgment, God is calling us to obey. He is calling us to stand out from the world. To be different. He is looking for those faithful people who look just like His Son. Do you want to be just like Jesus? you want to be able to stand when Jesus comes? We should be praying and asking God to give us the power to do His will. Because we don't want to be like those in the last days like Paul talks about who have a form of godliness. They call themselves Christians. They look like Christians. But they don't have the power of God in their lives to transform them. Do you want to be transformed? Is that the desire of your heart? If it is, pray with me now. Oh, loving Father, thank You for Your Word because it brings life. And You have shown us that You are calling us to be faithful. You are calling us to be obedient. You are calling us to surrender all that we have, all that we are, and all that we ever hope to be to You. And Lord, we're praying and asking that You can help us to do that. Because we can't do it on our own. We need You. We need a Savior. And Lord, we come to You boldly expecting You to keep Your promise. Because You told us that if we come to You and we repent of our sins, that You will in no way cast us out. And so, Lord, I pray that everyone here will examine themselves and they will come to You and repent of their sins. And Lord, You'll give us the power to live for You. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.